everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Safe to say that few moments in modern history have captured the public's attention like the fall of young blood. Tonight, Dazzle News Retrospective looks back at the events that led to the dissolution of the world's now most infamous super team, when a hacktivist group called the Bloodstream showed us that all the good young blood did was outweighed by a litany of criminal activity, illicit sex scandals, assassinations, and government cover-ups. So this is from Young Bloods, I'm guessing. <laughs> from you all, couldn't guess fr- from Bloodstream. All, from all the Young Bloods that you've been throwing around there. Bloodstream, Tom. Bloodstream. Somebody complained to Brandon Graham that he they really wanted him to do that, and he was like, well, "Maybe someday we'll do like a prequel to Prophet with Young Blood." Are they going to call it Old Blood? Um, mi- middle Age Blood. <laughs> Anyway, uh, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember, Seaport is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. So, shall we go on to the news? Let's. I would. I really wish that just once we could start an episode without saying rest in peace to a comics creator. Well, it's, uh, you know, old age and... Time, you know, the great devourer. Uh, Leo Baxendale, the great Leo Baxendale, I should say, died age 86. If you're like me, someone who mostly grown up with American comics, you probably only know of him by like distant echoes and names, but he was one of the biggest names in British comics. He, he was one of the backbones of the Beano, and he created characters like Minnie the Minx and the Bashfit Kids. And these are long, long, long-running trips and well-loved trips. So w- w- when the day come and when the announcement was made, every single British person on my Twitter wall was like, "Oh no, oh my god!" And I'm and I'm mostly aware of like late seventies British comics. Who's this guy? I'm sorry. And then oh, oh, it's this guy. Yeah. And I mean, it's sad, but. What what can you do? It's it's time, right? And uh, as time passes, we'll see more and more of these old legends that we grew up on, or that other people grew up on, die. Yeah, I suppose like the only real comfort at this point, because digital preservation of comics has become so commonplace, and there have been such concentrated efforts on the parts of companies like Dark Horse to collect as much of their work as possible. You know, a Bernie Wrightson, for example, you know, he recently passed and a lot of his work was collected and published in trade paperbacks and if, digitally. And if, it's not, if it's not collected legally, it's somewhere, somewhere someone out there is illegally making sure that everything is scanned and ready to download. Yeah. Which, yeah, that's... you know, if, if you can't buy it, well, I, I don't. I, I don't, I don't... <laughs> We're treading on thin ice. No, no, I'm saying. But... I'm saying if somebody has the rights and he sells it, and you want to read it, you should pay the person who has the rights. If nobody is publishing it, if it's just standing there in limbo and it's an important part of comic culture, well, I'm not. I'm not going to encourage it, but I'm not going to be like, no way, no how, right. Because I, I, a lot of 
you know, a lot of comics that up until recently haven't been published, I've first encountered it online. I I haven't read Miracle Man legally because up until three or four years ago, you couldn't have. And the bastards still haven't finished it, so let's not even give them credit but, for but, that. But back to Leo Baxendale. <laughs> yeah. Have you read any of these things, or like me, are you just aware of it by reputation? No, I I only started learning of his work after he had passed, and people were talking about Bino, and because it's not, you know, not a knock against him in any way, it's just that that wasn't necessarily something that I was interested in beforehand, so, you know... It didn't exactly click for me. But on the other hand, uh, like I said, because it's all so accessible now, I might. I might go look into it. Okay. Uh, so we go on to the Eisners? Yes. So the Eisner nominations have been released this week. And a couple of highlights. So I wanted to call out something interesting in the Best Continuing Series. Uh, the five titles that have been nominated are Astro City, Killer Be Killed, The Mighty Thor, Paper Girls, and Saga. Now, you know I love Brian Vaughn. Yeah. But I am, and again, like, Saga and Paper Girls are both excellent continuing series. But it is a little weird to me that he's competing against himself. Again. Yeah, like, this is turning into a practice, and I understand. If you asked me to choose between Saga and Paper Girls, I'll admit that it would be difficult for me, too. But I'm not sitting on an Eisner Award committee who makes these decisions, right? It is kind of... Now, at the same time, all of the other titles here, you know, The Mighty Thor is, in my opinion, possibly the only title that is being published in the superhero genre that deserves an Eisner just because of the work, the amazing work that Aaron and Dodderman have been doing on that title consistently. But, you know, all of these others, it's like, okay, there had to have been at least one other runner-up that you could have put in there instead of one of these titles. They're both deserving I'm, of I'm it. Not, I'm not sure how these votes are tallied up. It's possible that in, it's not like some person just decided, well, we'll do this and we'll do this. They just, everybody voted and... Well, Saga got a place and Paper Girl got a place because somebody, a lot of people rated Saga number one, a lot of people rated Paper Girl number one, and they're not the same people. Right. Which, it's a problem, but what are you going to do about the way those votes work unless you're going to change the, the people that vote? And I think, I don't think they revolve that much. They like swirl around year after year. Mm. And people talk about the, the Eisners as. The Oscars of comics, which they're not. Yeah. They're the well, Emmys of comics, because unlike Oscars, you have a continuation. And once somebody wins one time and he becomes a favorite, he tends to return again and again. So when you mm. look at the Emmys, you have those TV shows that every single year of their run, they will be nominated and they'll probably win something. Right. And Brian K. Vaughn is, I don't know, he's the Sopranos. He's the Americans of comics, uh, because... He has 11 Eisers by now. Well, he and, is and, that and, good. And, and he's, not, he's not the most productive writer. Remember, for a long, long time, he was only writing Saga. And he won, like, he won in the same year for both uh, Best Ongoing Series and Best New Series and, I think, Best Writer. Something ridiculous. Yeah. 
it's one of those, yeah, he is that good, but maybe someone else should be given a shot at the title. Well, no, my objection is specifically in categories where he's nominated twice. Like, I understand the rationale that different people may have nominated Saga and Paper Girls, but once it got to the point of actually publishing the nominations, I'm like, look, it is... Uh, it is my opinion that Brian K. Vaughn is one of the best writers in the industry, and I could see him winning this category with either of those titles, because the work speaks for itself. But when it does get to the point of the same creator nominated in the same category twice, it is kind of weird. Thank, God, it, thank God they nominated him for Barrier as well. Which they could have, but... <laughs> Yeah. That doesn't count I as an ongoing, it, I suppose. It, uh, no, it is an ongoing. Maybe it's, un, it's in digital. One thing I found interesting, and I wanted to ask your opinion on this. In Best New Series, Christopher Priest has been nominated, which I don't have a problem with, except that For he's nominated. For Deathstroke, right? Yeah, which I think lends credence more to the idea that the Eisners are the Oscars because they're retroactively awarding him for the wrong work. I have only read a couple of issues from his Deathstroke run, and it is actually pretty good. Like, considering I, the limitations and the double shipping, and because of that, they have to switch artists all the time, so it's not it's not the best-looking series. It's, like, well-crafted, but nothing more most of the time. Yeah. But, but it's a good series. It's like, it's a good action series, and he's got all his usual trademark... Things like jumping in time and everybody's a lot more intelligent than usually needed for those stories. Yeah, that's Priest's influence, obviously. But like when you look at the other titles that it's running up against, you've got Chelsea Kane's Mockingbird, Jody Hauser's Faith, Gail Simone's Clean Room, Jeff Lemire's Black Hammer. So uh, against all of those, Deathstroke does feel like the uh, odd I, one out. I, I will take it over Faith to be, to be truthful. Again, from the, what little I've read from both of them. I've read the first four issues of Faith when it was still just a mini. It's, yeah. it's okay. Deathstroke's better. I, I would never thought I would say today when I would say, oh yeah, Deathstroke. Sure. <laughs> Who would? Eisner. Who would say like Eisner winning Deathstroke? That's not a sentence that makes any kind of well, sense. We're, we're, we're in the world of Oscar winning Suicide Squad, so yeah. everything's possible, Sean. Yeah. Now, I know our friend Max must be over the moon because best publication for teens ages 13 to 17, Monstrous is up. That's... It feels to me like they wanted to put it somewhere else and they realized all the other categories were stacked, so they just put it there because you look at what it's up against and it's all like, you know, it's funny and funny stuff, colorful stuff. Uh, Jughead's there, right? Yeah, Jughead, Squirrel Squirrel Girl, Girl. Batgirl... And then, yeah. like, Monstrous, the one with, you know, the murder on every page and the naked and the naked girl on, on the first cast. Yeah, I'm not in, sure in that that's liter- the right age bracket. No, no, because in terms of literature, like, 13 to 17 is the YA literature, wherein future dystopias and fantasy dark realms are, are the rule of the day, right? So it makes sense. It's just that every other thing within this category would be considered aimed at younger ages if it was a book, a novel, yeah. right? Yeah, well, also there's the idea, I mean, you mentioned it, but it, to put a point on it, right? Monstrous, like, in its first issue, has a child being murdered and dissected. Like, I don't I, I don't the, know... That's the Hunger Games, right? 
Is it though? I, I haven't tried the. Hunger I mean, the games. Hunger Games I, I know was violent, the but the Hunger Games was violent, but I don't think it ever went that far. Well, you know, it's got its place, I guess. Yeah, but better there than nowhere. One of my favorites from last year, uh, The Art of Charlie Chan Hook Che by uh, Sonny Liu. Mm. Got, it's a graphic, no- a great graphic novel. Got tons of nomination. He's in the best US edition of International Material. He's in the best writer artist, like the best writer slash artist. Best coloring, best lettering, and best publication design. And it's, I'm hoping for a sweep because it's a well-deserved work. Have you read it, Sean? No. Or have you heard of it? No, I haven't even heard of it either. Uh, okay, um, I, I think I've talked to you about it outside of podcast, but maybe. Uh, the idea is this is a biography of a famous artist from Singapore mm-hmm. who is fictional. Like, uh, Sonny Liu made him up. And through him, he explores both the history of the region for over like 50-60 years, but also the development of comics because the big idea is that Charlie Chan Hook Che changes his style and changes his his writing throughout the years. So when he starts, he's doing like he's copying the British magazines of the 1960s. So he's mm. trying to do like a Dan Dare type thing and nobody buys it there. And then he's trying to do like funny animal stuff. And then he tried to do like a big political announcement and the final work before everything like turns into dust and he goes away forever is uh, sort of a man in the high castle alternate history type story. Like a big cool. science fiction story. And it's a very well-designed book. It's a very lovely-looking book. And it's a great big work, which deserves every recognition, like I said. Excellent. Mm. Uh, no, any... no single secret work in best academic or scholarly work or comic-related book. Mm. Well. I don't think we've ever been nominated. Well... Well, screw them. We don't need their approval. I mean, let's put it this way. We if do. They we are... do. We want. Like, <laughs> we don't need their approval. We want. Well, hang approval. on. If you think about it, though, mm-hmm. if whether they the Eisners are the Oscars or the Emmys, one thing that most people tend to agree about is that the stuff people actually love aren't usually represented on those shows. Like uh, the awards tend to be, you know, for the awards tend to play it safe. It's like so you I, said. It's one of those weird things where it's safe for us, for people who are between the mainstream and the alternative. But for people, I, I've talked to some people who mostly read superhero work, and for them, it's like, what are all those one, weird and wonderful things that we've never heard of before? Saga, yeah. you say? It's not a superhero book. It's not Marvel or DC. While on the other end, the people who are actually are most interested in alternative work. You know, will raise their brow. And, oh, it's it's image again. It's like the image awards. Yeah, I mean it is. But on the other hand, like when you really think about it, in terms of today's audience, are you telling me there's a scenario where someone who, even the most like ignorant person, can say what is saga? Like images marketing tends to be pretty on point when it comes to pushing books. I don't know if that's really a scenario that can still exist, where it's like you need the Eisners to tell you. That saga exists, you know. That would be like you need the uh, you need the Eisners to tell you that The Walking Dead exists. It's like no, these things have made enough of an impact by this point that okay. For example, Sunny Lou's book I hadn't heard about. I'll go look at it. Sure, but 
That, then you see, for example, in in the best writer category, Max Landis is n- nominated. That's just hell no. I I really don't get the appeal. I feel people actually love him. Like people love Superman, American Alien. People seem to like that terrible Night's Book we reviewed. Green He's Valley, so Green pretentious. No, There's nothing wrong with pretension if you can back it up. He can't. He really can't. I don't know. And nominated for an... See, that's the sort of thing that makes you think something here isn't right. Uh, you know? No, no, no. See, Even... You I, know what? I, I'll, get I'll, I get that people like. I don't get why I get that people like him. If I can just uh, go back a bit to the comic-related book and scholarly sure. work, some of this stuff is actually very, very good. Uh, what little of it I've read. Uh, there's the Critical Chips uh, Anthology. That mm-hmm. was edited by uh, Zinab Akhtar, which I've supported on kick on uh, Kickstarter. It's a very, very like well thought out, well written collection of articles by some of the best comic critics around. And you have uh, "Brighter Than You Think" ten short works by Alan Moore with essays by Mike Sobel, which is on my reading list. It's supposed to be like really the forgotten short works of Alan Moore, which are both published as the comics and as as an exploration of the comics. Mm-hmm. And Frank Miller's Daredevil and the Ends of Heroism by Paul Young from Rutgers University Press, which they had some really good stuff before. So, okay. yes, Sigward is not there, unfortunately for us. Next but, w- but what is there is good. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, anything else that you want uh, to talk about? Any, well, you know, Island is up for Best Anthology. I mm-hmm. hope they win. Yeah, yeah. Well, Whatever problems... You know, whatever problems we might have had with it, it was still worth the notice. Oh, Kim and Kim is nominated, right? For Best Limited. For be- yeah, but Kim and Kim is up against Tom King's vision. I don't think it's got a well, I, <laughs> chance every, in hell. Uh, I just really want this team, this team, the Magdalena Visaggio and Eva Cabrera, to get like recognition. If yeah. nothing else, so they can say when the new Kim and Kim mini starts up, because it's coming like in three months' time. You can say on the cover, if not Eisner Award winner, Eisner Award nominee. Well, they can say that now anyway. Yeah, and maybe people will buy it. More people will buy it. Because, as we've said before, this series deserves recognition. People should read Kim and Kim. Yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, Beyond that, not a lot of big surprises. You know, nothing that really stood out in terms of shocking nominations or anything like that. Kind of what you'd expect. Yeah, I'm Um, angry for the lack of giant days. Um, well, John Ellison was nominated. Yeah, but not Giant Days. Giant Days is joy. I mean, I mean, that's the weird thing. Like, you would have expected Giant Days to go in the best publication for kids category. Or the ongoing, even. Well, would it have made best ongoing? I don't think so. I I think it's, I think it's better than anything else they've put there. I mean, I, I personally would say it's better than Kill or Be Killed, but that's me. All the others are just staples that perform, you know, on a different category. It's a different level. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to it and we'll talk about the winners once the winners are announced. But so far, you know, not too many shocking revelations in the nomination stage. Interesting news, sort of bridging the gap between books, academic work, and film. Lotus Entertainment and Paper Chase Films recently announced that they would be producing Superman vs. the KKK, which is a film version of the 2012 young adult nonfiction book by Rick Bowers that talked about how the 1946 radio drama 
where yeah. Superman took on the well, sort of like a thin metaphor of the Ku Klux Klan. The cross Klan. of the 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 cross of the Red Clan or something like that. It it was the KKK. Everybody knew it was the KKK. The big the big thing was that the people who produced the show worked with actual anti KKK activists to steal all sorts of passwords and real life details from the KKK. And you had all those rumors going around of people in the KKK saying, "Well." I I came back from work today and my kid was playing a Superman beating me up. And it's, <laughs> and it's claimed, and it's claimed in various sources, including, uh, I don't know if you've read Freakonomics, the big bestseller about application economy in 2005. No. It was claimed there and in several other sources that the show had actual influence on the decline of the KKK in the mm-hmm. post-war years. Like, because they made them look stupid, because they made the KKK be the enemy of Superman, right? Right. And kids turned against them, and public opinion turned against them. Yeah, and at a point in time where Superman... Yeah, it's one of those, you can't really prove it. Like, you can claim it, and you can say, anecdotal data shows that A came before B, therefore B, but it's a good story. In theory, it's a, it's a very good story. Yeah. And I'm glad that it's getting... It's interesting that sort of interest in that novel, in that book, resurged with the announcement of the film because the book came out in 2012 and let's just say that the idea of heroes in comics fighting against (laughs) hate groups in 2017 uh, is slightly more appealing, Nick Spencer. Slightly more appealing you know, the idea of fighting against hate groups. Uh, it's, the story itself is interesting. The book is, well, it's a young adult nonfiction. It's more like a longish article in a magazine mm. than a book. Right. You, I would recommend it to you. I would recommend, oh, just read the, Wikip- the Wikipedia and say, oh, that's interesting. The actual Possibly. radio shows, which you can find today on YouTube, you know, free to listen. Arahut, yeah, the radio show. Arahut, though, like it's like it's fun. It's like so naively optimistic and heroic, and like to be against other people because of their race, creed, and religion. It's gosh darn un-American. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you want to hear you want to hear him say that, right? On the yeah. radio, you want to hear. It's him. good to hear. I would like to hear Henry Cavill say that as Superman, but unfortunately, he's too busy being dead and snapping necks. And snapping necks, yes. Snapping necks is the right of all free of all free Americans, <laughs> immigrants. But um, speaking of film, though, mm-hmm. I'm. This is the point where I admit that I am a little jealous of you. Because you have seen a film that I want to see and have not had time to see yet. Well, you will see it. It's not like, well, I've seen it and now all the tickets are gone forever. Nobody can see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sean. Uh, well, I, I can elevate your mood a little by saying that it's not that good of a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those weird things where I watched it. I had fun while I was watching it. And I went out of the cinema and people asked me what I thought about it and said, oh, it's, it's kind of bad, but it's so fun. It's like, I enjoyed it so much, but it's, it's kind of bad. Because, huh. okay, uh, it's one of those, A, the Marvel structure is at this point is super obvious. Like, 
you start with a big sweeping action scene and then you introduce the new conflict and then you have all this flab in the in the middle where people are just yeah. standing and talking and standing and talking and talking but i mean here's the the thing with that argument though like just to momentarily pause the yes. the because it is a criticism that comes up so often the idea of the repetitive marvel structure and while i understand and acknowledge that let us not forget that we are fans of comics and we have like there are people and critics who have boiled down the entirety of the superhero genre to very, very specific structures. We know that. So I don't know why it's constantly being raised as a point of critique that, you know, of course there's a Marvel structure. Any book on the market right now no, it's, has it's, the Marvel I'm, structure, I'm the DC structure. It's not the hero's journey. It's not the archetypal structure. I'm no, no. It's, the, it's Marvel's journey obvious. specifically. It's, it's super obvious. Of and course it, it is. And, and it's so weird when everybody's talking about this is James Gunn's project and he's it's a very personal project. So why does it feel like Ant-Man at certain points? The, the scene, all the scenes where they're just standing in a mansion and talking about, oh, this is this and this and that. And B, like every other single criticism against Marvel movies that doesn't involve Loki, the villains are boring. And it's weird because it's Kirk Russell's ego, the living planet. Which, how do you make it boring? How do you make A, Kurt Russell, boring, and B, Ego, the living planet, who is a planet that lives? How do you make him boring? He's a planet with a mustache. (laughs) It should be impossible. He should just be there. They should just be saying, he's Ego, the living planet. And he should be like, (gasps) you know what I wonder? It's It's like so... Backhanded, oh yes, I'm a planet, but I have like a human avatar, and, and you're only going to deal with the avatar? Well, well that I, makes sense. Well, it makes sense in terms of, you, you've paid for Kurt Russell, you might as well show him, but why? Like, why? Show me the big planet! Show me the mustache! Well, and I do wonder, like, when they announced that Ego, the living planet, would be in the film, I'm like, that's kind of like Galactus, right? That's kind of like a concept that would that looks fantastic on the page but it's really hard for me to figure out like if you played it straight it would look redonkulous i don't like what would that even look what would the beard be like it would be cgi of the worst order you know what i mean it would be a good cgi of the worst order uh, I make mean, the wow <laughs> make make it the like everything else is cgi make ego like a jim henson puppet <laughs> And the third thing is that they obviously, there's a bit of the Pirates of the Caribbean 2 syndrome where, oh, the thing that everybody liked in the previous movies, uh, Groot and the pop songs. So they just, you know, they push that pedal to the metal and it's like, oh, yeah, what was fun the first time around feels a bit like forced. And, uh, and uh, oh, it's the song. Oh, it's it's another scene with the song with... There's no reason for the songs to be played at certain points, but they insist on making the songs part of the scene, and it feels forced. And the same with Baby Groot. It's a great design. He's super adorable. There's a lot of great jokes with him and Rocket Raccoon, but but let let it breathe a little. And I'm, I'm I am maybe I'm underselling it because it's 
maybe I'm just tired of Marvel movies in general. That's quite it's, possible. It's possible. I mean, like, we... We're, like, you 57 know, movies in, so it's quite possible. The, that's interesting to me. Like, the whole question of, you know, we have been trained as people who've been reading comics for all these years, you know, to the, the month in and month out pace of it. And yet, like, when I say that I'm burned out on Marvel, it's got nothing to do with the structure. It's everything to do with the creative decisions, right? And in film, I think it might work differently. I think the process of, like, you know, the fact that these films come out, two of them, three of them a year, and even though they feature different characters and they are theoretically different chapters of a larger ongoing story there may be some fatigue coming into play that doesn't in comics or doesn't in that way. Well, because it's we, film. It's not, a, it's not for a long, long time. It hasn't been a serial medium. You went to see one movie and then you went out of the movie and maybe the movie got a sequel, but it wasn't made thinking immediately. Uh, we have to use number one as a jumping board for number two and number two would be a jumping board for spin-off five. Like you had, you had, you had, you had Die Hard, and it was successful, and then you had Die Hard Two, and it was successful, and then you had Die Hard Three. You didn't stop in the middle of Die Hard Two to prepare the Lethal Weapon Four crossover. Well, yeah, but I don't know if that comparison really works because from the beginning, when you adapt, I mean, this is like it predates the Marvel Universe when you think about it. This is like back in the day when they were talking about the possibility of Michael Keaton's Batman and Christopher Reeve's Superman meeting up, right? Anytime you adapt something that is from a shared universe that comes from that environment, there's a built-in expectation that the pieces have to, or theoretically have to fit together, right? Now that never happened with DC, you had the occasional joke about here's Metropolis and this is why Superman works alone. Yeah, because, and it still know, hasn't happened. And it's still, it's amazing. They're doing it now and it still hasn't happened. Well, presumably when the Justice League comes out, we'll have to look at that and see exactly what. Must we, Sean? Oh, must, I don't... must we really? <laughs> Does the Tom, duty of review bound us that far? <laughs> you and I are strong, independent critics and we can take it. We can endure and be critical. You have to, but, you have to buy me like uh, five <laughs> bottles of booze and the good stuff and the good, not like Budweiser. You, you have to buy me like, I don't know, Jaeger we'll Meister. We'll have to take a drink every time Bruce Wayne makes an unconvincing gag, but that's a different story. Let's not get into that. So yeah, the, I'm saying, like, obviously when they put out Iron Man and Hulk and all of that, they weren't necessarily expecting that these movies would fit together and would connect. And we have, in fact, talked about the idea that, you know, the post credit scene isn't a surprise the way it used to be because we know what the overall structure is now. So we know what to expect. We know that this film is leading into that film and that film is leading onward and that it's all moving towards Infinity War. We know that. But on the flip side of that, I think if these pieces, these puzzle pieces need to fit together and hypothetically, right, in theory, once all of this is done, once phase three is complete, if you were to take the entire series and what, you know, marathon them through, if you can make the argument that there's a consistent through line across all of these films, even if it wasn't designed that way, if it appears that way, 
That I think is the cinematic achievement. Yeah, because but, that's but something you in, in this point I can't imagine watching them all the way through. Not be, not only because of the length, but because it's boring because they're repetitive. I can't I, I, just thinking about watching even through phase one and two. Not even talking about the thing that's going on right now. I'm like, oh, another stopping scene at at location B where people are talking. Another opening action scene. Another like. Another uh, punch gag, punch gag, punch yeah. gag. Another guest star, another Stanley cameo. Just thinking about it, I'm tired. And I'm not going to be one of those guys that says, well, at least the DC movies are doing something different. Because No, no, this isn't a comparison no, issue. They are doing something different. They're being bad. They're just being very bad, which is different. But, yeah, no, but some, also the solution... Competence is not enough. Uh, well, see, the flip side of that is I have to imagine, like, this goes back to the whole question of Edgar Wright. Like, if Edgar Wright had made a unique Ant-Man movie that didn't fit in with anything, you would be looking at that and you would not be able to fit it in with other films. I, the question is whether there needs to be tonal consistency and structural consistency between these films because they're meant to fit together. Otherwise, you do get situations like, uh, Batman v Superman and then Suicide Squad, which certainly made gestures to being in the same universe. Ben Affleck does appear in that movie, well, but you couldn't find two films that don't fit together. Well, it's not like the whole of the Marvel Universe ever fit together. You had Frank Miller's Daredevil sharing the same CD technically with the Power Pack. Well, no, but if we're talking about, I mean, let's be fair here. If we're talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it is... You know, that's like saying Brian Singer's films factor into that. They don't. You know, we're talking about the, the universe that started with Iron Man and continues on that line. And you have the Netflix series on top of that, right? It's the Defenders and the Avengers. And that's it. Now, the question of can you do something that really breaks that mold and then work it back in? I don't know. That's That's a really ambitious question. And it's possible that... They because might the, have succeeded with the that. First like, Gu- the first Guardians felt like it, right? It felt like it was no, different because it was far enough on the edges. And I will say the good thing, I, one of the good things about Guardians 2 is that it still does the standing on its own thing. It's related to the previous uh, Guardian movie and maybe sets up a third movie, but it's mm-hmm. not... You don't get Thanos. You, well, don't, this, you don't get... People saying, oh, back on Earth, the Avengers are... You don't. Right. They're not doing that yet. But I do... See, that's that's the issue here. It's like, you say the Guardians of the Galaxy, the first film, stood out. But I recently rewatched it. And to some extent, it does follow the same structure. You do have the uninteresting villain. You do have the... You know, it starts off with the scene of, like, explosions and everything when Star-Lord is fighting... Uh, Korath, you do have the the group getting together and the montages. You these are elements that are recurring in all of these films. The, the white the white guy called Chris taking his shirt off. <laughs> how, how many Chris's do they have? Two Did that three? happen in Guardians two too? Oh yes, obviously. He gets uh, a shirt of the scene. Okay, yeah. <laughs> how, how many Chris's are there in the Marvel universe? Because there's Chris Pratt and there's Chris, Chris Evans, Evans and there's another and one, right? Chris Hemsworth, Thor. Right, <laughs> like three. Yeah, we we can we have to wait twelve movies before we have a black lead or a female lead, but we have three creases in main. We role. have all of diversity. The 
Oh, listen, I mean, the diversity critique is valid. Absolutely. And we'll see what happens with it because we've got Hella coming in now. We've got Valkyrie. We've got, you know, the landscape is tilting towards a more, you know, mixed cast. And I like that. They probably should have started that last phase. Okay, but before, before we finish Guardians of the Galaxy, because we've talked about Chris's one thought. <laughs> yeah. Christopher Walken in the Marvel oh. Universe. <laughs> who, who would Christopher Walken play? Well, see, this is where I feel like, for the first time, I have to say, maybe Jeff Goldblum was a mistake. Because they cast Jeff Goldblum in Thor Ragnarok as, uh, what is it? The, the Grandmaster, the grand, right? They cast him to say, look, it's Jeff Goldblum. But would that not have been perfect for Christopher Walken? What have you brought for me today? Well, I guess, I guess they could cast him <laughs> as another elder of the universe. There's, sure. There's like Why plenty not? of them. Like he, there's a lack of cosmic beings. That, he uh, could be Galactus. Oh my god. The thought of Christopher. Oh, please let him be like Galactus, but also Christopher Walken dancing in that Moby video. Hmm. So then it's like, you know, Galactus dancing around while the world is exploding. Yeah. That'd be fun. Uh, shall we move on to the Defenders? Yes, yeah, so just as sort of an extension, if we mention the Netflix yeah. universe. So the first uh, official trailer for the Defenders came out. And they fight their worst enemy yet, Hallways. Oh, those damn... You know, Hallways are the true weapon of the hand. I, I'm, I, it's not the hand. See, my big theory right now is that the final villain reveal would be a crossover with the DC uh, universe, with the DC uh, television universe, because it's... Like, they're entering a room, and this huge face reveals itself, and it's Danny the Street. Danny the Street and, is the oh. big villain. And, and, and they're asking, why are you doing this? Why are you helping the hand? Why are you trying to destroy us? Because you've killed my brother, Benny the Hallway. <laughs> like, like, and then it turns Roger out... Roger the Living Hallway. He was just trying... He was always moving around, trying to find like a quiet place to live. And whenever he's just sleeping, you're just bursting into rooms punching up the walls, and now he's on life support. My, 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 my hallway brother, my little hallway brother is on life support, and I will destroy you for that. Defend and then it turns out that Sigourney Weaver is the avatar of Danny. Oh, yes. I love it. Yes, yes. She's, she's, uh, she's like, uh, she's the ego's, like, living avatar. Yep. But yeah, there weren't too many surprises in terms of what the trailers show. I, there were a few points that I did like. First of all, they are taking very great care to preserve some kind of banter between the characters. Like, for example, there's a scene where Matt is walking around with a, with a blindfold on and Jessica says he looks like an idiot. And he says, well, it's your scarf. So, you know, I like that they're trying to develop relationships between these different protagonists. And not just throwing them in there and having everybody be po-faced. Like, if this is going to work at all, it's going to work by making them a team, right? It's the, the kind of cliche, kind of like the Guardians. You know, these disparate characters coming together and becoming a family. If Defenders is going to have that kind of emotional kick, it's already guaranteed to have a win, right? Uh, because uh, I think... They did a... F whoever runs this show did a fine work in keeping making Iron Fist hateable. Yeah. It's amazing. He's on screen for 20 seconds. And I'm like, please, Luke Cage, kill him now. Like, 
And then Luke Cage beats beats him down with one punch. Yeah, yeah, but he's still alive. Like he is still alive, and I don't think that he's gonna die on the way to his home planet. Maybe, maybe if he beats him, and then the next scene is like, oh, the trauma to to my head finally revealed the real me, who's not a douche, and also changed my main actor. <laughs> like we had to give him a plastic surgery. I don't know. Luke Cage hit him so hard he turned into a Chinese American. <laughs> oh, no, 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 Sean. No, oh, no. he found that machine that uh, from the old Lois Lane comics. I am curious, Black, where she goes in a white woman and she comes out a black woman. What you're siloking Luke Cage? Uh, I think well, mean... Sean, that's even worse. I'm not, I'm hey, not joking. That's Psylocke there... is like. A can of worms the, the size of, I don't know, the worm, the worm from Dune. It truly is, but I don't know. I wouldn't mind. I, like, the anyway, best thing I, that you can say about Iron Fist, well, in, in, in terms of representation and appropriation is, well, at least he's not Psylocke. He's, at least he's not an actual the brain of a, of a white woman in the body of an Asian fetish doll. Reverse Ghost in the Shell? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. That's yeah. terrible. But anyway, so the trailer also showed us a little bit of Sigourney Weaver, who, you know, is queen of the universe, and I am super happy to see her in anything, so I don't really care. She's here. You know, ding, ding, ding. It works for me. Great. Uh, lots of appearances from... This is the interesting, by the way. In terms of... I mean, we mentioned diversity. So the characters that show up here from the other shows that are explicitly seen are Electra. Misty Knight, and... Um, Stick. Well, Stick, yes, but also, who was I thinking of here? Uh, Colleen Wing shows up for, like, a, a split second. So, they are bringing back almost all of the women. Mm-hmm. I don't no, know no, if no Karen Punisher, is though. No, Punisher was never part of it, though. I wonder if they had known in advance that um, John... What's his name? John Bernthal's performance would have been so popular if they would have just done The Punisher instead of Iron Fist. If they had had that kind of leeway, that kind of time, maybe. I don't know. But The Punisher's his own thing, which also, you know, I'm also kind of grateful for, that he has his own self-contained series and it's not part of this. That's fine. He doesn't have to deal with the hand. But, uh, yeah, the trailer got me hyped. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, hope that it will be... Because, you know, we... You know, trying to predict things in that, in advance based on like tea leaves and stuff like that is a tricky business. I'm not going to say that it's not, but you remember we were having questionable vibes about the Iron Fist promo before the show even came out. It's like our spidey sense was tingling. We had a feeling you and I were both like, eh, there's, there may be some problems here. I'm not getting that from the defenders. This does feel like something that has been in the works for a while. And will not be subject to the same problems that Iron Fist did in terms of poor writing. But having said that now, I would, I'll look like the biggest idiot if it turns out to be crap. But I think they've got too much writing on it to let that happen. Hopefully. And uh, from that one last bit of TV news, the opposite of hype, unfortunately, Powerless has been cancelled. No, 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 Sean. Powers have been cancelled last year. <laughs> now, now there has to be like you know a, a DVD companion piece called like you know the power and the powerless, because now I, I have to be fair. That, here. That's like that, that, that's your Eisner nominated scholarly work, Sean. Get, there you get, go. Get cracking, Sean. I am waiting. Yep. For it. 
you have to watch all of these terrible TV shows and compare them for some reason. I mean, uh, you know what, what's a disappointment? Actually, now that you mention it, they do have one thing in common. In each of the, both Powers and Powerless had an actor that I had always said I'd follow them on anything because I love them. And in both cases, I couldn't make it. Like in Powers, Powers had, um, why am I blanking out on her name now? She played Admiral Kane on Battlestar Galactica. Michelle Forbes. Okay. Right? Michelle Forbes, I love Michelle Forbes. I've loved her since Star Trek The Next Generation. She's a fantastic character actress. You know, I, I enjoy following her on every project. Could not keep up with Powers just for her. And Powerless had Danny Pudi, who played Abed on Community. Brilliant comedic actor. But also, eh, you know, that show just wasn't funny. It felt like it changed its premise halfway through the season And by two episodes in, you're like, the guy who is, like, a cousin of Bruce Wayne, you know, played by Alan Tudyk. Again, Alan Tudyk, someone with excellent comedic timing, stuck in a role that just did not work for him. So I wish the cast, uh, you know, good luck in finding future work. They're all very talented, but this project was never going to work the way. Because, again... Sean, we we need to help them. What other comic properties... With the word power in the title could be a TV show by next fall. <laughs> like start, okay, we said power back earlier. So that's one thing. What else? What else? Come on, Sean. Power Girl. Power Girl, right. Danny Pudi as Power Girl. Yes. Okay, what's next? He has the chest for it. Uh, what's next? Uh... Because Luke Cage is technically Power Man? Is he, though? The show is called Luke Cage. Yeah, but he was for a while, like. I, well, the question there's, is who... There's the other it, Power Man, right? The younger version. Victor or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Victor Stone? I don't know. No, Victor Stone is Cyborg. I'm sorry. Uh, whatever. But there's another Power Man. So that's... Okay, so we have Power Girl, Power Man, and Power Pack. Right. Okay, so next fall, free Powers TV show. Ready to <laughs> get up. Ready to be cancelled in, in two <laughs> or less. <sighs> but yeah, it, it is... My you know, it, it was a series, though, I think it it's something that you've mentioned in the past, like, you know, so, something that this series fell into and should not have. This is very blatantly a show that was embarrassed to be related to superheroes. And I don't know if that was a budget thing or if that was just part of the sensibilities that went into designing the show. But, you know, they made a big, big deal out of the fact that this is Wayne's security and it's happening like in the DCU and all that. And they never really did any of it. You know, they never portrayed any notable Batman villains. They never bothered with actual superhero characters. They they didn't do the groundwork. So when you say it's superhero related, but not really... It does create that sense of, well, if you don't want to be about what you're supposed to be about, then why is anybody going to tune in? Okay. Yeah. Sh- shall we move on to actual comics? Let's. What do you want to start with? Uh, well, uh, the, the one we waited for, right? Forever and ever. Youngblood number one. Oh my god, Youngblood is back, Tom. Written by Chad Bowers with art by Gene Toey. With coloring by Juan Manuel Rodriguez and lettering by Russ Wooten. Yes. This and is there's from... a backup strip by the life oh, of himself. 
Oh, I'll get to that backup strip. Don't you worry, Tom. I got something to say about that. So this is Image's attempt to revive Youngblood. To give it a transfusion, if you will. Mm-hmm. Of younger blood. Now, I have to say, this book started with a little bit of promise. Because let's not act like the original Youngblood was some undiscovered masterpiece. If we're being completely honest and we're evaluating things fairly, it was about as good as Rob Liefeld's Prophet, right? It was a lot of giant people with enormous shoulder pads and, you know, ammo strips around their arms. Just pale copies of existing characters, right? The Archer guy, Shaft, is very clearly Oliver Queen. We're not even pretending otherwise. Uh, they even tried to get Alan Moore to do a revival of it, and it did not take off at all. Judgment Day, right. Yeah. Um, so, now, but this is on not... the other hand, there is recent good history of taking Rob Liefeld properties and revamping them by younger, <laughs> better creators, because... Well, profit we're divided on, but we both agree it was a bold experiment. Yes. And glory we both love. The Joe Keating, uh, Sophie Gamble glory is, well, as its name, glorious. It's yeah. one of the best superhero stories of the last five years. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because in my opinion, like, okay, setting aside my personal dislike of profit, acknowledging that it is brilliant in terms of what it does, let us keep in mind that the reason Profit and glory are as good as they are is because they make a very conscious choice to step away from the original material as if to say, yes, the character of glory as she had been portrayed up until the point that Joe Keating took over was maybe not a part of the 90s that needed to be preserved. But if you take the template and work with it a little bit, you can get some really brilliant stories out of if it. You, if you dig, if you dig deep enough, You can find the basic idea and make it work. Yes, but in the process of digging, you are distancing yourself from the original. Here's where Youngblood went wrong, because Bowers starts out by introducing new characters and a new premise, right? You have this idea that uh, Petra Gomez, who's this former Olympian, uh, she's a superhero known as Gunner, and she's part of a network of heroes that use an app called Help! It notifies heroes of potential problems and also allows people to review them in the style of Yelp, right? So two stars, five stars, whatever. Two stars saved my life but blew up my store. Five stars rescued my daughter from a human trafficking. Would use again. Hope I never have to. Yeah, and that part is brilliant, right? That was a legitimately funny moment. Yeah. And now someone on this service goes missing, so Gunner decides to start looking into it. Because they, their account has disappeared and something mysterious is going on. Up until that point, I was on board with the possibility that I might actually be enjoying a young blood book, which is not a sentence that I ever thought I'd say. Have you but read I, the previous prom, the Joe Casey one? No. No, no, I went in one. blind. It was semi-decent. I didn't, I don't know nothing about that. I went in completely blind here and I was interested enough in that concept up until that point to be like, you know what? This could be another glory. This could be another prophet. Just take the name and do, do your own thing. And then the comic switches over to the old young blood characters and 
my interest immediately just like went straight to the ground because they're talking about like the president and the first lady and there's this guy who's locked up and they let him out and there's this enormous rock guy who's in a machine and dying apparently and see here's this is the failure of Bowers what he did wrong here because you remember in the initial issues of Keating's Glory he does not expect the reader to know what Glory was doing before he started writing. It's the same with Graham's Prophet. If you read his first issue of Prophet, you don't have to know. Like, it doesn't... The, the plot itself does not hinge on your existing awareness of these characters, and reasonably so, because these are not characters who have survived the test of time. It's not Batman, it's not Power Girl, it's not even freaking Mera of Atlantis, right? That None of that. These are characters, these are D-list and F-list characters who, you know, Lee felt pushed as hard as he could when he was at the apex of his power and fell through the cracks and have been forgotten. Now, Graham and Keating had the good sense to say, okay... Let's re- start the story from the beginning. We can make allusions to past things, but the readers don't need to know that it was illusions. Here, he, he introduces these four original young blood characters, two of whom are in the White House. One is dying. One is locked up. Clearly, we are not only expected to know who these characters are. We're supposed to care that it's their, it's actually their story. To which I say bullshit, because I don't care about any of that. See, I disagree. And I don't think it's the greatest thing ever. But I do think he does enough of the lifting. Not the heaviest of lifting, but he does enough of the lifting to get us to understand, if not who these characters are exactly, then what they are and what they used to be. Because the President of the United States is an old superhero who's a robot. And his wife is also an old superhero who used to be called Vogue. And we don't have to know exactly who Vogue was or what she did. All we need to know is that she was a superhero, and now she's kind of flattered that somebody's taking up her mantle. Nobody asked her, but she's like, oh, young people still like me. And I think it's enough to introduce us to those characters. And I do like the idea of conflicting younger and older generations, which is something that superhero comics have been doing for a while quite successfully. I would agree with you that it is a bit too early. You should have uh, just kept the old young bloods in the background up until, I don't know, issue two or three, and then do like the big reveal of, oh, they're still here. Because I would have even say, wait until the end of the first arc. Well, we don't, we don't know how much they have. I would also say that the art, again, unlike Glory or Prophet, the art is just okay. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's, it's well told, the, the designs are nice. The storytelling is fine. You never get lost. You ne- you never like wonder who is somebody and where they are. The action scenes are well performed, but when you started Prophet, you had Simon Roy with his like deep cut science fiction work, and yeah. when he did Glory, you had well you had Sophie Campbell, who she has this unique talent of making everything beautiful. Yeah, she she can draw the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles suddenly. Oh, these. Young adolescent turtles with their ninja weapons are suddenly the most divine-looking thing ever. She can find, <laughs> she can find, she can find the inner beauty in everything. So yeah, they had those but, unique touches. And Jim Toe, he's just, he's just a good artist right now. 
you don't look at it and it just screams at you, read me, read me. And if you're going to do these revivals, if you're going to try and t- tell to the readers, there's something here for you, these 20-year-old characters that are now mostly known as a punchline. Ha <laughs> <laughs> young blood, those Rogue Lifel characters, ha ha ha. Sure. Well, you need to be able to tell to the reader from, from the first panel, this is something unique. This is something you, this will blow you away. Uh, Jim Toei, Toe? Toei, I'm not sure. Toe, I think it's Toe. He's not there yet. He might be in the future. I haven't seen anything else by him. I think if they wanted to make this revival, they should have, A, as you said, keep the, the older characters for later, and B, make a bigger splash with the art. Yeah, I mean, you remember what happens at the very beginning of the first issue of Keating's Glory? It starts with, like, a, a narration of her growing up, and then she goes to war in World War II, right? It's essentially restarting the story. Here, you know, you have that news segment where it's like, oh, let's talk about how these, this group was involved in assassination. It's like, no, but nobody cares. Nobody gives a damn about Youngblood, the story that Liefeld was writing at that time. That's not what any of this is here for. I think, I think the mystery works well enough. It's not my favorite thing ever, but unlike you, I think it's a decent first issue. Now, the backup strip. Uh, skip it. Skip it. I don't want to see Rob Liefeld writing or drawing anything. And the fact that this backup strip is, let's call it what it is, okay? This is Rob Liefeld masturbating. It is literally three of his characters. They're walking into Bauer's story, looking around, being like, hmm, this is all significant. It is very important to the timeline. And then leaving. It's almost, if, if it were any other team, I would say it's almost metaphorical because he's playing the old guy, like the old young blood, intruding on the new young blood, just like the characters in the previous story. And it's, yeah. all, and, it's <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not sure if, if that's what they arrange because Rob Liefeld, I don't like him as a storyteller. I don't like him as an artist, but he is self-aware at this point. And no, yes, he isn't. I, I think he is. You, and, you know and, why I say he I isn't? Want, and, and I wonder, is it accidentally brilliant or, or is it intentionally brilliant? Okay, so the reason that I say he's not self-aware is because... Did you read the letter that he wrote? No, Sean. The young blood? You, you, you can't ask that of me. Okay, just a quotation, right? So he starts off talking about 25 years ago, young blood launched, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. This is the last paragraph of his letter. It starts like this. These are my babies. I'm reluctant to let others play with them, and I've been fortunate to have the best and brightest authors in the business provide outstanding content for Youngblood. So when he says he's reluctant to let others play with them, like this goes back to his whole thing with Shatterstar, right? He's talking about um, the wildest and most impressive and imaginative ride this comic has ever seen 25 years later, the journey continues. I'm like, Rob, not one person, not one person picked up this book because they thought that this was going to be Rob Liefeld's young blood coming back. So the fact that he has a backup strip here talking about how important the story is, I'm like, that's the kind of thing you would maybe do for, 
mainstream characters when you want to say like this story is super important yeah. or you know like you remember how marvel used to have watu show up whenever something important was about to happen yeah the watcher be like this event is significant i'm here to see how it goes down he's trying to do that here with young blood which to the extent that anyone remembers young blood at all it's not going to be because of him it might be because of alan moore even I, though I'm, that i'm reading this now either. sean and i'm Mark Miller wrote Youngblood? When? <laughs> I kind of want to read this now. Wait, what? It says here, Chad Bowers and Jim Towers to step alongside Ellen Moore. Okay, yeah. Robert Kirkman, sure. And uh-huh. Mark Miller and Arik Stevenson. When did that happen? You know, that might have been before Casey. I, 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 I like a two-issue filling or something on Team Youngblood or Youngblood. It Blood must have been. But, but it's... Mark Miller and Youngblood is a match made in somewhere. Not, not, Eighth not, level of hell. Not, not, <laughs> so you, you've made it obvious. Uh, I, I'd I say mean, Limbo, like uh, Belasco's version of Limbo. <laughs> but it's, oh, uh, it's I, so I, bad. I, I'm super curious now. I'm, I'm going to search it out. And if it's, and if it's available, I'm going to buy it, Sean. <laughs> Mark, it ha- no, Mark, it Mark had Miller's to have been. Youngblood. No, it had to have been like a, a one-shot or a special or something. And it could be the greatest comic ever made. Ugh. Pass. Uh, shall we move on to the next thing? Something you actually Please. Like? Yes. Yes. Uh, so you'll introduce this one. Sure. So this is Eternal Empire number one by Jonathan Luna and Sarah Vaughn, also from Image. Uh, it is a new fantasy series, which I know causes some eye rolls because, you know, Image. But it has a map on page one. It does have a map. Beware of maps in page one. Not necessarily. In epic epic fantasy series. I'm pretty sure Bone had a map in page one too. So we'll set that aside for a minute. Now, it was actually... I approached this issue from a slightly different angle. Because what happened was I came to Eternal Empire having read Rose last episode and reviewed it then. And it really was an interesting comparison for me to make because... I saw very clearly how many times Vaughn and Luna managed to avoid the obvious trope traps that Finch fell into. I'll give an example. So, well, actually, I have three examples. First of all, there's more complex world building in this story. You have a prologue that suggests very clearly that this oppressive eternal empire, right, the the villains of this story are the product of a last-ditch effort to stop a previous war. This isn't just some evil kingdom that's evil for the hell of it. Like Even calling them villains, they're villains from the point of view of our main character throughout the issue. There's enough in the prologue to maybe let us think there's something more complex going on. Yeah, like this might have been a situation where the oppressed became oppressors in their own turn, as opposed to motiveless malignancy, right? It's not the Empire from Star Wars. Or that they're actually holding in cheek something far worse. Like, yes, the the peasants live in pain, but without the Empire, we don't know. They might, they might all be dead right now. Yeah, it's possible that this ongoing war to unify the world might actually have a reason behind it. Right. That's already it's not something that's clarified in the first issue, but it doesn't need to be. It's just an initial suggestion of more sophisticated world building than you saw in Finch's story. Second, the Eternal Empress herself does not appear in this issue. 
She's not lounging on the throne in Christina Aguilera's old getup talking nonsense like she does under Finch, right? The evil queen. And what we see here is we have an antagonist, or what we assume is the antagonist, viewed from a distance. This is someone who's been deified by her soldiers. And obviously, the slaves who are under the control of the empire have never seen the empress. They just know that they're under her power. So there's that as well. And finally, and this is the thing that I really, really appreciated, the protagonist is not the chosen one. You remember me rolling my eyes when I was reading Rose talking about, oh, of course there's this girl with secret magical powers, and she has a special cat with a K. And here, the the character who we are focalizing through is this white-haired woman, we don't even get her name, She's having these visions. She's a slave. But the big twist, not to spoil specifically, but the big twist is someone else has the real power here, not her. Well, and that's something I, that I find I assume, interesting. I assume she will be, a, if not a chosen one, then a big, important mythic character of some sort. It, it she could has, be, she has visions, Sean. You don't just randomly have visions. get visions. Unless the visions are coming from the last page twist, Mm. right? There is an option here that someone is sending her these visions, that it's not actually about her. Now, I haven't read, like, ahead in the solicitations. I don't necessarily know if that's the direction Vaughn and Luna are going in. I'm not even sure. Is this an ongoing or a mini? It's an ongoing. Okay. Well, it is an ongoing for now. Depending on sales. Well, it's Um, uh, the the Luna. Well, the Luna's. I almost said the Luna Brothers, but it's not. But, it's Jonathan Luna. Yeah, but it, all of his previous works, either either with his brother or the the thing he did with Sarah Vaughn, Alex and Edda, they were mm. ongoings for limited, like the longest one, Girls. Yeah, limited ongoings. Twenty four issues. The sword also ran for twenty four yeah, issues. So, yeah, so so he has he has prepared length, and it's shorter than the Vertigo length, shall we say? Yeah. So I, I and Alex and Edda was what eighteen issues. I think fifteen or eighteen, yeah. <laughs> so it's an ongoing, but it's an ongoing with with a mission statement that won't. Sure, that it's not a saga. It's not a Walking Dead. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, definitely. That's that's uh, fine. I will say this. Um, other than my vague, I'm kind of doled out on epic fantasy, but I'm a superhero reader, so I have no right to complain if other people like it. <laughs> I, 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 I've lost the right. I've lost the more right to complain about people. Enjoying obvious genre works. <clears throat> I will say this. Jonathan Luna's style as an artist works against the story. Because what he does, he does pretty people. And it's okay for the opening for the prologue. But when we have those peasants in their harsh life in the bitter cold, I don't buy it. Like they look, She looks like a supermodel. She looks like she's in a photo shoot. I just don't buy the pain and misery... The, the haggard face that she should have, that they should all have. Yeah. Everybody looks too smooth, too silky. And with something like Alex and Ada, it's fine. It's a science fiction story. It's in the future. Everybody's in their comfortable homes. Half of the characters are robots, so it's okay that they have perfect skin. Here, I'm looking at this woman. It's like, oh, the bitter cold, like our terrible lives. Lady, your skin is better, is taken care of better than mine. Unless that's a plot point, but if it is, it's not clarified in the issue. Because everybody looks like it. The, the, if the nobles, the guards, it's so... It, yeah. It works with 
something again. It worked with something like Alex and Ada because the similarity between certain characters is part of the point. Yeah, it worked on Ultra too, right? Ultra mm. Seven Days, where it's like, yes, that they're all like superheroes. supermodels, right? They're all like yeah. supposed to be taken care of and look as as good as possible. And here it's, uh, eh. I yeah. will say I did enjoy the part when she was running away and we had the slow fade out to to white. It was a good, yeah. very good use of coloring and actual good use of decompression of just using page after page to slow us down and making us understand how how hard the, the escape is and how long has she traversed from her own point of view because she lived her whole life in like a 60-yard parameter, right? Go yeah. to the field, go to sleep, go to the field, go to sleep, and that's that. Mm-hmm. But and then it takes her like that that repeated vision to decide that she wants to sneak out. Yeah, but other than that, I'm not that interested. If the reviews will be good, I might be coming back for a trade, but it's not high up on my to-read list. Let's say that's, that. That's fair. I am sticking around only because I have enough... Like I, At this point, right, the Lunas aren't creators that get a lot of credit consistently for what they put out. And, and when I think back about what's, the major series that they've received... What? What's uh, what's uh, Josh Luna's doing? Do you have any idea, Joshua? Jo- Joshua Luna. Well, we were talking last time about like our conspiracy theory is that Joshua Luna actually is Sarah Vaughn. But no, <laughs> see the best. <laughs> we have been talking about it. When last time when we were talking about the solic- the solicitations for Eternal Empire, we were like. Joshua Luna has actually not been doing much. The last project that he did on his own was in 2012. It was a six-issue mini called Whispers. Hmm. And I I read that, and it wasn't really... It wasn't great. Um, his personal now, website I'm seeing now is empty since 2014. Yeah, he maybe, hasn't maybe, been Maybe active. he's done from comics. Maybe he's working in animation. Or some other field that actually pays you money. It's possible. I mean, Jonathan is the artist and Joshua was the writer, so I'm not sure how that worked out. But, like, when you think about the work that they put out previously, right? So Ultra, Girls, The Sword, Alex and Ada, these were all fairly strong stories. So the prospect of, you know, and Sarah Vaughn also has a reputation for being a decent writer. Granted that I'm not as familiar with her because, uh, what was it? She she did that Dead Man three-parter, right? Yeah. And there was also, um, well, she did do Alex and Ada, right? She co-created Alex and Ada with Joshua Luna. But, you know, so these are creators who have a measurable degree of talent. So I'm willing to take that ride with them and go on the assumption that there might be something inter- really interesting here that they're working uh, on. Like, I, I'm, I've never read anything bad by, by Luna or anything terrible by Sarah Vaughn, but it's not something... With all of the other interesting stuff that's out there, this is just low on the totem pole for me. That's fair. I, I am sticking around for the whole thing. Okay. Uh, now, I want to talk about something that I've read and you haven't, which I've been waiting for for a long time. Go and for it. And it's another case of the art not being a good fit for the story. I've read Alien Dead Orbit number one, Written and drawn by my favorite James Stoko, which uh-huh. I've, I reviewed his uh, Godzilla work in the podcast before, and I loved it. 
and this orc stain, which is either either alive or dead. I have no idea. It wasn't the Schrodinger's case. comic? <laughs> it is both alive and dead. Well, he's he's a super detailed and therefore super slow artist, so it takes him forever to draw an issue. Fine, and if he needs to do these uh, uh, processed works to make money and. He likes doing them, and he makes good work. Again, like his Godzilla work, I'm fine. Aliens that orbit... Hmm. Okay, the setup is your classic alien story. Because you have this team of astronauts on a space station, and they have a distress call, and they go to the, sp- to the forbidden spaceship, and all the crew there are dead, and they're back on the station, and, well, guess what? Go, yeah. go on, guess, guess. You will never guess what happens. They're all dead! They will be, because we start with a flash forward. So we know that the mechanic, uh, is our protagonist, is the only one to survive. Right. Which is an interesting idea to just say, well, you know, these disposables actually are disposable. You, you only have to care about that one guy. Um, yeah. Maybe a now, little too on the nose, though. It's, it's not that much of a problem. Here's the thing. Stoko's art... Is too good for an alien story. Because, <laughs> no, 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 no. What I'm saying is this: Stoko's style is like super detailed, super exact, super everything is made here. You can see every fold and every spacesuit in the background. You can see where the torches hit the wall in like four pages ago. Everything is made clear to you. You can see the depth of every page. It's amazing work in terms of world building of this small space station, right? Yeah. But the problem is that when you're making a story with an alien hunting somebody, some people, you need vagueness. You need the shadows. You need for something to be creepy and unclear. And when <clears throat> Stoko has this scene of our mechanic looking for the wall and seeing something and not being sure what it is. Is it is it an alien? Is it just a pile of machines uh, in a weird angle? And then he sees, oh, it's just a pile of machines. You're like, well, obviously it's just a pile of machines. I can never buy him not knowing anything because this world is so strobe clear. Mm. Like, I, like I said, it's, it's weird, right? It's too good. If he would have made it an Aliens type story, the, the Alien sequel, where it's one, one guy or a couple of guys and there's just horde of monsters and the theories from the overwhelming numbers and the isolation... That's mm. one thing, but he's doing it at least from the first issue, like the first movie, like Alien, where the fear is, oh, there's something lurking in the shadow, and I can't tell what it is, and with the James Stoko art, I can always tell what it is. Right. Y- you get me? He's hyper-detailed, so trying to obscure things doesn't really... Yeah, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's weird. He's too good for the story. Yeah. Now, like when I, you think I, about it, you remember like in Aliens, in, in the film, there's that scene when the Marines first go down and one of them is looking right at an alien, but you can't tell. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of like, as soon as it moves, you realize like it was part of the background. You, you, need, you need someone like Jock, right? You need someone who does deal in, in shadows and in obscure, obscure forms. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe Stoko can do it, but he doesn't do it here. He does his usual thing which if nothing else it's it's not a bad issue because it's james stocko drawn issue and these by law by universal decree can't be bad just looking at it 
makes my mouth water from appreciation of he makes every single test set and part of this ship look like it's been lived in. It's not just mm-hmm. a stage for the action to come later. I believe that these people have been alive on this place for so long. And he even does like some really nice throwaway things. When when we ask ourselves, wait, why don't those future people in the space stations have any guns? The head of the station tells us, oh, I threw the gun away when our security personnel got drunk and start shooting like two weeks ago. Right. He has this nice in-character explanation for why would those people be mostly defenseless when the attack starts. But it's kind of artificial <laughs> when you think about well, it. Well, it's... No, no. It, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not transferring it right. It works in the context of the story. And in terms of alien comics, which there have been many and most of them are super forgettable and nobody cares about it, I think the only thing that... The, the only aliens comic that people care about is the original... Uh, Walt Simonson series, which was just an adaptation of the script, yeah. and there was a Mike Mignola drawn, like, three-issue limited series with Dave Gibbons, which was, if nothing else, again, pretty and atmospheric. But everything else, there's trillion, billion Dark Horse stories with aliens and Predator and aliens without Predator, <coughs> and nobody, almost nobody cares about them. If you look at it from these terms as an alien comic story, it's great. I, I, like, one of the top three alien comic stories ever. If you look at it in terms of it's a James Stokoe story, bottom rung. That's fair. And I'm still I'm still going to read it, and maybe by issue two he will, like, he'll rev it up, and we'll get something <clears throat> more up to his usual style, but issue one is a bit of a... <sighs> it's not what I wanted. It's, maybe yeah. it's me, it's not what I wanted. No, it's understandable. It's like there is the problem with the Alien franchise specifically, I say problem in quotation marks, is that when you really get down to it, there is a a specific style and a specific aesthetic that to some extent different artists have to sort of adapt themselves to because it was defined so powerfully in, you know, Ridley Scott's films and James Cameron came afterwards. Like, you know, the, the imagery, the whole HR Geiger influence stuff is, is very, very powerful. So an artist like James Stokoe, who, you know, this guy has done Godzilla. <coughs> He's done massive projects that required intricate detail and huge scale and stuff like that. But when you're dealing with, Something like the aliens, it can be really, really tricky. Um, maybe it's the alien thing in general. This is the franchise that shouldn't have been a franchise because mm. it's not. It's it's in terms of science fiction, it's you know it's not Star Wars or it's not Star Trek, but it is very big. And there's been movies and other movies and prequels and there's sequels right now and there's comics and computer games. But the actual story that you can tell with the aliens and in the alien universe is. There, those are these people. These are the corridors. Something hunts them. They die. You essentially, yeah. We who are you, about you to die salute you. There is no ex- There is nothing to extend. You can't have a huge battle of, I don't know, space marines in mech suits against tons of aliens because once you do that, you realize, oh, it's just primitive monsters. Put the guys in armor in an open field, and it's a game over for the aliens in five seconds. I mean, essentially, you, you, you nuke them this, from orbit. Once, once w- you w- once you take the the protagonist and actually let them use the resources of human civ- space civilization, it's it's over. 
Right. I mean, essentially, this was a mistake that the Aliens versus Predators films have made, right? The whole idea that the character that you are interested in is the alien and not, say, Ripley. And that doesn't work. The alien cannot be the center of interest for the film because they are the the force that will be killing all of these characters. If you don't do the legwork to make the characters memorable and fun and create some kind of suspense, it's like a... it, It follows the format of, like... Uh, a serial killer horror movie, right? Where the question that you will always be asking yourself is not whether or not the alien is going to win in the end, is whether or not, like, who is going to survive out of this six? There's going to be one, maybe two survivors, no more. If you turn it into, like, it's a mystery and we have to figure it out, it's like, no, we know that it's aliens, a queen is probably involved at some point, that's about as far as it's going to go. Yeah, yeah. It's just it. Sh- it never should have been a franchise. The storytelling yeah. options within Aliens are too limited. It should have been well, one movie, two movies, one comic book story, and that's about it. Why, why do we need more? Um, uh, so I'll tell you, I I have mixed feelings about that. I'll, I'll be completely honest. This is a bit of a tangent, but the thing is, what I have come to appreciate about the four alien films that came out, right, the four that I can consider canon, it's like, you know, one, two, three, and Resurrection, is that if you really look at it from the perspective of Ellen Ripley as a character and someone who has changed so much over the course, that's something that appeals to me, like, as a viewer, right, as a storyteller, a character throughout an extended period of time, who goes through so many changes, so many transformations. What about her stays the same? What about her changes? I even like the fact that in Alien Resurrection, it's like it's a hybrid clone that Silver thinks that she's the real one, you know, and and so she's constantly trying to figure out, you know, who she is and, and whether she's going to keep doing this thing forever, fighting these aliens. I like that. But that is something that is intrinsically tied to a single character. Once you take that character out of the equation, you end up with a situation of, okay, yes, the alien is a very effective antagonist. It's a very scary enemy to be up against. But much like the Predator, you know, who they ended up sort of like slamming into by default, in itself, the prospect of aliens hunting people is not that interesting. It's not that unique. The aliens don't really bring anything to the table in that sense. So if you're going to do it, you have to be able to have that kind of long-term, like the survivor character. This is one of the reasons why, you know, comparatively speaking, slasher films like Friday the 13th or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the reason that they eventually go downhill is because protagonists don't carry across from film to film. It's not about these individuals who are constantly running up against these nemeses of theirs that are killing everyone around them and they always survive by the skin of their teeth and every encounter changes them. You know, now when the alien, as soon as aliens became a franchise, and this has been going on for decades, right? Who aliens have been like in comics, in franchises with Dark Horse specifically for years and years and years. This isn't a new phenomenon. But it has really diluted the efficiency of the alien, I think. They're not scary. Not anymore. 
I mean, Warren Ellis used them just as a plot device to kill off Stormwatch. What did that, you know? That it was, had nothing to do. That was 20 years ago, Sean. It was 20 years ago, but that just goes to show you how little that technique has changed, right? People are still doing that today. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm the, well, I'm already in tank for the rest of the mini because I pre-ordered it. And I'm not, <laughs> no, no, see, I'm, I'm not angry. I, I'm not like, oh, it's terrible. It's not as good as I wanted it to be. But it still could be because there are three more issues and James Stokoe could just, could just let loose. He could just decide to let loose by issue two. And then I'll be like, I'm taking back every bad thing I've said. This is amazing. And I'm hoping that's the way it's going to be. He could. It's possible. So, uh, last review for this episode is the Big Moose One-Shot. Writers are Sean Ryan, Ryan Katie, and Gorf. Artists are Corey Smith, Thomas Petilli, Ryan, J- and, uh, sorry, and Ryan Jempole. This is from Archie. It is a one-shot centered around Marmaduke, Moose. I don't even remember what his last name is. This Damn. is, we're talking about the comic continuity right now, not the... Riverdale type thing, right? No, it, it it's it's the reboot. This is Moose Mason in the rebooted, but not Riverdale. Okay, this is getting so confusing. How is Archie Comics? I'm still stuck on why is Archie Comics having confusing continuity? Never mind. Let's get back into it. So, uh, three stories centered on Moose, who I have to be honest was always a very strange character to me in the context of Archie, and more so after the reboot. This is basically this towering wall of muscle who's like the biggest guy in Riverdale. He's a complete moron who is easily manipulated by people like Jughead. But at the same time, we're meant to see him as someone who is essentially kind-hearted, right? Midge loves him and he's not Reggie, so he kind of wins by comparison. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Gorf in the third story has him threatening to beat up a freshman on crutches. And alludes to the fact that Moose beats up, like, all of them. Archie, Jughead, the whole gang. So, tonally, this is a character that's all over the place. And you see that even in the Rivertail reboot, where he starts off as, uh, like, a closeted jock who may or may not be Kevin Keller's love interest and then isn't. And then it it turns into a sort of sweeps under the rug. I don't even know what's going on over there. But this one-shot tries to... Bring that character into focus. Uh, and it's an interesting result. I'm not sure it works. We start off with Ryan's story, and Ryan is essentially doing Moose in the sort of cartoonish sense, right? This is a character who is so dumb that Jughead manipulates him into giving him lunch for a week in exchange for $1 so he can get a candy bar. And Jughead tells him, you know, you get to eat the candy bar now. I have to wait until next week to eat your lunch, which is not what he said. And Moose, of course, falls for it. Right? So it's the Tom Sawyer routine. Fine. Yeah, he's a complete idiot. And, you know, he ends up accidentally knocking over the vending machine and he gets all of the candy. And Midge is exasperated with him, but she loves him, so it's fine. Katie, on the other hand does something a little more interesting in that it goes, it gives Moose the narration. So Moose is a focalizer. We're going through his thought process. And there is something very sympathetic about the idea that he knows he's not 
up to speed, right? He knows that he's slow on the uptake. He's got some kind of learning disorder. He's aware of it. But the thing that characterizes him, according to Katie, is that he's giving a hundred percent to everything. He's trying to pass uh, English so he can stay on the football team. He's trying to be the best at the football team. He's trying to be the best boyfriend for Midge. He's trying to be a friend to Dilton. He's really stretching himself very, very thin. And his parents are always telling him, you know, you don't have to work that hard. We love you no matter what. It's okay if some, if you let some things fall. And he's like, no, this week can throw everything it can at me. I want to prove that I can do it. That is very, you know, positive and uplifting and interesting. That actually is and a this, nice angle. It's a bit of a Charlie Brown type thing where, yeah, you know, he, he wants so much to be loved and appreciated that it works against him because people can smell desperation in a way. Well, not even that, because according, again, this is Katie's take specifically, is that, you know, he actually does have people in his life who love him and care about him and don't care if he fails, right? Mm. Midge, Midge doesn't need him to plan this amazing picnic for their anniversary and go out. She doesn't, she tells him like, you know, I don't need that from you, but he does it for her anyway. Because he wants to, right? So that is very charming and interesting. And that is actually something that could make him a fascinating character. And then Gorf's story completely screws with that. Because like I said, you know, he gets into this beef with a freshman who's on crutches. Who clearly has, it's either ALS or, you know, something. Some kind of degenerative uh, disorder. And it's just like, really? Really? And, you know, the story, I don't even understand what Gorf was trying to do here because the point of the story seems to be that, you know, this, this, uh, uh, kid on crutches, uh, challenges moves to a wrestling match. As the coach is trying to explain, you know, in wrestling, it's really about using the opponent's weight against them, etc. And he does manage to flip Moose over, but he immediately realizes that Moose threw the match. So he's furious and he's like, I'm going to ask Mitch out on a date. And he's trying to provoke Moose into beating him up. And I'm like, so hang on a second. The worst thing you can say about Reggie in the reboot, at least, is that he's a scheming asshole. But you're actually okay with saying that Moose is a bully. Like, that's flat out what it is, right? He's beating up people who are smaller than him. And it's implied that he does this to Jughead and he does this to Archie. And Jughead has this line like, it's okay if you beat us up because we can take it. I'm like, excuse me? That is not the character who appeared in the previous story. What the hell? Fifty Shades of Jughead there. Oh my god. I'm like, listen, if that was the angle, that would at least be... (laughs) I'm like, okay, so Jughead's into BDSM. Whatever. Not the point. But like... The idea that, according to Gorf, they endure his beatings. What the hell? And Katie goes the opposite direction. It's like, he really is, like, pure-hearted, and he means well, and he's not smart. Well, so it, he it will seems from up. what you're describing that this one shot is, like, a tryout of, let's write these three stories, which are pretty different versions of the characters, and see how they work. Like, what's... What do the readers like? Do the readers like the comedic guy who gets used? Do they like the super sympathetic guy 
who's trying so hard and you kind of root for him but not but and he knows that that he's not quite up there as he said or do they want do they like him as a villain because well, see, that's the problem these these the takes are like Reggie is because he's like he said he's the douche villain he's the douche villain but and he is a bit of a bully but he's not a physical like he He's not physically threatening the problem with I mean I understand if this one shot was explicitly trying to take three different tacks but the problem is these approaches are mutually exclusive right not so much the first two the first two you can sort of say like okay there's moose being an idiot and that's how everybody else sees him where the only thing he wants is a candy bar from a vending machine and he can't get the dollar bill straight enough and He drops weights on it, he sits on it, he sticks it in a grill, he can't get it straight enough to go through the machine, and it frustrates him. And that's funny, right? That's Moose as a source of comedy. There's Moose as a source of identification and empathy and sympathy because he's trying really, really hard. And then there's this version, and it's like, I don't understand how the, like, two of the, one of these is not like the other, you know what I mean? It's just bizarre. I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, what was the purpose of this? Because these three cannot be simultaneously true of the character in Wade's Archieverse, as it were. And it's not even true of Moose in the Riverdale thing, because this isn't a Riverdale tie-in. Well, Sean, obviously, what we're seeing here is the seeds of the darkness to come. Crisis on Infinite Archies. Summer 2018. So th- what you're saying is this is Earth 2 Moose. Earth 2 and there are three Moose. Uh, there are three Mooses, Sean. So it's Crisis on three Meese. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, no. I don't want that. No. I, But, uh, I, so, yeah, I, it yeah. is. But it's like two-thirds of a good comic and yeah. one-third of a confused comic, which in terms of hit rate, it's not bad. Yeah, it is. Especially... If you look at it as the Moose Anthology, as the 2008 of Moose, as the Fresh Romance of Moose, you know, two-thirds for an anthology is, a pre- is pretty good. Yeah, it is. And I, I will say, like, you know, the first two stories are really, really good. It almost makes me wish that Sean Ryan and Ryan Cady were doing projects in this Archieverse, right? Because as we said, like, based on the solicitations, Jughead is now also going to be written by Wade. So it's sort of risking tonal, you know, just blending together. Like, I would love to see a moose ongoing from one of these two writers. Gorf, I can take or leave. I don't think that that's... I think that's more somebody working off a description of the character as opposed to really thinking about the implications of what it is that they're doing. One day we'll do a podcast where we, we all star the Archie comics. We... Just sit no we're just sitting there and we're thinking okay who should write the Dylan comic and who should write the Salem comic obviously Salem should have his own series who Salem uh, the Sabrina's cat wait a minute when you say reviewing the Archie verse are you talking about like does, do we, we should, have to include Sabrina should, in that yeah Sabrina and uh, no. the, the band uh, what's what's their name Josie and the Pussy Josie cat. and the Pussycats yeah well, what else not. is there Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's it. Like, Betty and Veronica always get their own yes, spin-offs, yes. but they're characters in Archie. I think it is just those, you know, it's Sabrina, it's Josie, and it's Archie. The Secret History of Pops. 
Written by oh, Garth Ennis. He was a, he was a, no, no, he, not he was a war hero, Sean. He just sitting there, in World War milkshakes no. and remembering in days of old when the German threat rose upon Riverdale, some stood on guard, and one of you, them was Pops. You realize that you're asking for Pops born again. <laughs> so I want that to, no, I want that to be clear and on the record because. <laughs> I, I think this is probably the point where we should finish the podcast because <laughs> we are rambling on tangent upon yeah. tangent. So yeah, I do recommend the one shot. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to it. Uh, of the comics that we've talked about today, I do think I'm... Hmm, I'd have to split it between... I think Eternal Empire has a lot of promise. Uh, Big Moose is very effective at what it does. So those two titles I thought were great. Youngblood is too busy kissing Rob Liefeld's ass, and that's not somewhere you want to go. So, Well, since I've great. mentioned it in the Eisner section, The Art of Charlie John Hook Chi is a great graphic novel, which I highly recommend for everybody. And before yes. we finish this program, broadcast, episode, what have you, I'll remind you once again, we are broadcasting via Seaport, Seaport.org which is a very important and very worthwhile organization for advancing comic culture. And if you like what we do, if you like what they do, well, A, buy their stuff, and B, if you approve, support us on Patreon and at least share our stuff on Facebook, Twitter, what, whatever uh, pr- public platform you crazy kids are up to nowadays. Yeah, I actually would like to call out someone specific if we're talking about Sequart uh, material specifically. There is a an article by Matthew Kirschenblatt called Star Wars Legacy Junior Jedi Knights When the Force Awakens, talking about the old extended universe and how uh, Disney has inadvertently sort of erased a tradition within the Star Wars literature of teen heroes and positive teen heroes. You know what I mean? Like um, the, the the solo twins and their adventures when they were younger and the sort of young adult perspective on Star Wars that doesn't really exist anymore. At least not yet. So that's an interesting, very interesting article to look into. Okay. So this was the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.